Welcome, I'm Stuart Coleman, Learning and Business Development Director at the Open Data Institute, and this is the ODI's Inside Business Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about how a business can build and retain its reputation as a trusted brand by demonstrating it can be trusted with data. But we want to focus specifically on what role data literacy should play in that process. Our thesis is that if an organization is open about how it gathers, shares, and uses data, particularly personal and sensitive data, that should lead to increased trust in the brand. But with the caveat, you can't achieve transparency with your data without a strong level of data literacy. Just to be clear on what we see by data literacy, the ODI sees data literacy as the ability to work and think critically with data, much like we take for granted the way we study English language and literature, certainly in the UK, as separate disciplines, we think the same kind of narrative and thinking is critical with data literacy. I'm delighted to have with me some fellow podcasters to help untangle the complex web of trust in data, data literacy and trust in brands. First of all, I'd like to introduce Jen Rodvold. Jen is Head of Sustainability, Digital Ethics and Social Impact Consultancy with Sopra Steria. Sopra Steria is a global digital services company working across a range of sectors, uh, and in particular in the UK works strongly in central government, health, aerospace, financial services and defence. Thanks for joining us, Jen. Next up, we are delighted to have Alessandro Piscopo, who is Principal Data Scientist at the BBC's Data Lab. Um, Alessandro's team works on the development and deployment of public service recommendation algorithms uh, across the Beeb, and uh, I'm going to ask him in a bit to explain a bit more about what that means. And last, and by no means least, is Di Mays. Di is super well placed to talk to us about brands and trust, as she is global head of data and AI at WPP, which is the umbrella group for many household agency names that we may know, and creative brands, including the advertising agency Ogilvy and the market research company Kantar. And she always delights in telling me that one in four ads is uh, as a result of WPP's work. Um, Great to have you with us, Di. Thanks, Stuart. Great to be here. So first of all, I'd like to start with you, Jen, by sharing a tweet that we saw put out by a data management company in 2018, just after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Thanks, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. You've ruined customer trust in brands. So off the back of that, did did Sopraseria decide to set up the practice that that you're leading as a kind of response to this breakdown in trusts in brand around data, or, or suggested by that quote? I'm sure it wasn't in complete response to that, but was that a big driver? Great question, Stuart. I mean, trust is really at the center of, I think, the entire movement around around digital ethics. And what we saw when we set up the practice is an interesting kind of intersection of activities. So on the one hand, technology and data advances are driving most organizations to try to make more sophisticated uses of advanced technologies like AI, thinking about personalized services, and really, really sophisticated, more sophisticated uses of data. At the same time, yes, we saw a a big shift in citizen and public trust, consumer trust, in technology, the Edelman Trust Barometer, I think in 2019 recorded, it might be 2020, I'll have to go back and look, but recorded its first ever drop in trust in the technology sector. And that was combined with a a trend in reduced trust in all sectors um, 
but particularly in government. So on the one hand, we've got organizations of all types really, really growing their appetite to make greater use of data and advanced technologies. But on the other hand, the public becoming cautious for the first time after trusting institutions with their data uh, for a long time. So yes, we had to put trust at the center of our value proposition. And that's only grown in in our clients' focus that we don't, most of our clients kind of don't want to be the next um, post office or the next Apple card scandal. They want to make sure that they're doing right with their data. And that's what that means right now is that there's a tension between innovation and ethics and, and data use. And, and we hope to kind of relieve some of that tension by coming up with more creative approaches to embedding ethics in, into data use, including personalization. Thank you. And I think you obviously mentioned uh, a couple of yeah, post office brand obviously been in the, in the press recently because, uh, you know, two and a half years after the, the impact of kind of systems and data not working in that environment, people are still, people's lives have been ruined and they're still being kind of impacted. And of course, that will have had an impact on the post office. I mean, the BBC is a, is a trusted UK institution, Alessandro, kind of defined by the fact we take it for granted as as something that, that is kind of revered and loved and, 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 and increasingly under scrutiny and then in, in the kind of the face of the taxpayer relationship with it. But can you just explain to us a bit more about I mean, you're working with recommendation engines and algorithms in the BBC's data lab. Maybe there's an assumption from people that your work supports BBC journalism, and in fact, you're probably working all about audience. Could you kind of expand a bit more on what your work involves and, and how it supports and where it's, you know, to Jen's point, like where, where are you finding the tensions between trust and innovation in, in what you're doing? Data lab in particular just um, works on products that are kind of audience facing. Uh, like just uh, we work, we develop and deploy these recommenders that you know end up picking content in my team in just um, my squad. They say that the part of the team I'm uh, mostly working with, we work on, and it's recommendations, uh, personalized recommendations on BBC Sounds. Basically, if you go to the BBC Sounds app or to the web page, you have a rail that uh, you have multiple rails that have content that is personalized for you. So uh, based on your history, listening history, you would um, see different content than I would see. The main goal of that is that, well, we want the BBC to be for everyone. And um, we do understand that, you know, like thousands of content items are produced every day. So it's really hard for any user to find what is the most interesting and relevant thing for them. You're kind of touching on the personalization in the more of a business context that Jen was talking about, the desire and the tech. Obviously, in, in some respects, in the in the consumer services, we kind of take for granted these recommendation engines. Obviously, you've got the kind of privately run titans of content, people, organizations like Netflix and Amazon who, who kind of push things out. The BBC is a public service broadcaster. So how do you strike a balance between kind of keeping to that mission in in the recommendations you're making and how do you think that might differ to those organizations for example can I mean could you expand on that is that I mean when you're designing these algorithms I think just as as I've mentioned already recommendations are output as any other like as any piece of content anything that is published on any BBC website or platform like be it's uh, sounds or replay or BBC news recommendations are parts of that. You know, what a user can see or can't is basically editorial uh, choices with a big difference that they're at scale. And so you can have editorial like 
just checking each set of recommendations to ensure that they follow editorial guidelines. So what we do, we um, we have a work process that we have refined over the years in which we work alongside with editorial and product to ensure that our recommendations follow editorial guidelines and the BBC mission and public values. So you're saying there's a mixture of automation through trained models that will look at things like editorial guidelines as well as in, as some human oversight to the process to try as much as possible to keep those recommendations aligned to BBC editorial guidelines. Is that is that right? That's exactly it. What we do, I, I can say just under uh, my perspective as a data person, like the, as a data scientist, I work together with editorial people and there's this relationship in which they are our kind of they have the editorial sensitivity, they have the domain knowledge to be able to say whether what good recommendations uh, should be, what should and shouldn't be done. You know, we as data scientists were to interpret these things, you know, their domain knowledge, and translate it into technological solutions. That's very interesting. So that neatly brings us back to data literacy. So it sounds to me like those colleagues you work with, there's a good level of kind of data translation, I would call it, like almost like a level of data literacy where they understand the tools and capabilities you're working with to such an extent that you can have a productive conversation with them. I mean, the is there a shared language of data in, in the BBC that people use? Is that something that... Um... Well, that's something we had to work uh, through. Like Data Lab started, I think, about well, almost five years ago. And just at the beginning, there was this kind of learning curve in which we, and when I say we, in this case, is kind of data people, uh, had to uh, work alongside the tutorial to you know make sure that we were just using a shared language that we could understand each other, that on one side we could understand their needs and on their side they could understand what algorithms can do, what data we were using. It's been a process in which I would say this this means uh, also building trust in a possibly in a different sense than like uh, the trust you build with audience-facing tools. But trust in like editorial not being worried that we would, you know, like about things like, you know, the filter bubble, you know, all these kind of issues that are often uh, mentioned when it comes to recommendations. But uh, but then just as a, as a technologist, you have kind of to dispel some myths, you know, to kind of uh, explain what um, what could happen and what couldn't in some cases, etc., Okay, it's very helpful. I mean, I, I just I just want to turn to, to Dai. I mean, Dai, you've been working across WPP's hundred plus companies um, to build. I think I think you call it an academy, do you not? Of of kind of capability. Can you? I mean, the, the concept of shared common language, like a kind of a lexicon that everyone understands when talking about data, does that exist in WPP? Yeah, it does. And we're about two and a half years in, and we we layer it by deep skill, upskill, reskill. So that we really do try and make sure that the the data literacy work that we're doing is accessible to everyone. So our deep skill is our AI Academy. We've got a KPI to deep skill 5,000 data practitioners. Really want to celebrate their art and their science and 
we accept that not everybody wants to be a team leader. Some people just want to be really great at what they do. And I want them to have a stage. I want them to be celebrated. I want their skill to be respected. I want them to have a fulfilling career at WPP where we've got common tools, language, and data that they can then move between creative agencies and media agencies. That's my dream. And then we've got a a Demystify AI program award-winning where I had the the small KPI to to upskill 50,000 colleagues I mean it might as well be 100,000 why not upskill everyone at WPP and it's really trying to make data accessible so on the either side of that and just going back to Jen's point which I, I really agree with on the tensions in trust and innovation I hadn't framed it like that but actually what our team are trying to do is build trust in the data so we've got a metadata catalog where we we connect not collect data so we're sharing the same data want people to access it and not think I'll do it myself because I don't trust you. It's really important that they trust us, that we're acting in good faith to buy good data, that it's clean and accessible, give them the literacy, the skills, the tech to actually do something brilliant with it. And then the last part of my role is our communities where I want them to share their work and give them a stage. I love it when people go to one of our community webinars and go, really like that case study that was shared. I've got something equally brilliant. Can I share it? And I think then you've got that full loop. And to go back to Alexandra's point about if you're too good, you do create a filter bubble. Because if your only KPI is to drive efficiency or performance, then actually the machines and what we're setting the models to do may well create unintended consequences. And so part of that literacy and trust, I think, is is really to make sure we create an environment and a place where any unintended consequences on any innovation, actually, we've got the right, the right base to surface them and correct them. That's super insightful to hear how you're doing that and the language that you use. Um, I think that maybe there's a there's a need for a whole nother podcast around the kind of tension between building trust and innovation with data. I kind of like that as a, as a strap line. But just, Jen, you're working with um, major clients in a slightly different context to to kind of that of, a, of an agency business. Yours is all about delivering digital services. And some of those are in public sector, some of those are in other sectors. Of course, there have been issues over through the pandemic as well, whether it's things like algorithms not working or or being you or people rushing to use algorithms and sometimes forgetting the humans in the loop. We've seen examples of that. Do you see data literacy as something that's increasingly being recognized as critical for your clients to kind of feel that they can work to build trust and to build capability, much like organizations like WPPR or, or like the BBC kind of already have this capability embedded? How do you see that playing out with your clients? Data literacy is absolutely on the rise, and it's so encouraging to hear the interest in data literacy is certainly on the rise, not actual improvements in literacy yet, I would say. And it's really encouraging to hear Di's story. It's really, really impressive. So well done. I'd be interested in hearing more, Di, about your starting point, because some of the clients we work with have conversations you know, are kicking off data literacy and data-driven culture change programs and in their internal stakeholder engagement are having conversations with people who say, well, I don't use data, so I don't need this. And that's a really astonishing starting point to be dealing with and grappling with at the same time that organizations are, as I say, trying to 
really have a, a data-centered strategy, not just a data-centered digital strategy, but a data-centered corporate strategy. So the, the gap between the vision and the ambition and the current state, when you look at it, start to look at it from a a trust data literacy and data culture perspective is really interesting. And I think it's not really been that present in the conversation around data ethics. And Stuart, we've talked a lot about this previously, but you know, I think we've been in a, in a place from a data ethics and digital ethics perspective of getting to grips on what we mean by digital ethics and, and data ethics, kind of coming to a common understanding of a set of principles that we want to work towards, and then the emerging frameworks that have come out of WEF and OECD and the European Commission. Now the challenge across the board seems to be putting those into an organizational specific strategy and then critically operationalizing that. And I think even when we get to that point, the conversation has been around how you translate ethics into code, um, how you make algorithms transparent. But we've not yet really started to see a huge focus on the people side of things. And if we're going to be successful, we really do have to address concepts of literacy and culture. And the other thing that's really interesting, I think, to, to think about is that when we think about data literacy, we can't just be internally focused. We have to think about our end users. And it does go back to things like algorithmic transparency. That conversation seems to me to have been largely focused on what data science and people in the know um, understand by uh, understand an algorithm is doing not what the end user understands about how decisions are being made about them based on data and processed by algorithms and technology. So we talked a lot about algorithms today on and off in, in, and ultimately algorithms feed upon data and having trustworthy data is essential for algorithms to work in an appropriate way as is maintaining humans in the loop. A couple of anecdotal bits of information I think are very interesting and timely are that over the last week, China publicly shared that they are looking to regulate the use of algorithms and, and AI tools. Now, that is quite a bold move because no other government has yet done that. Both the EU and the US um, administrations are looking at this. Uh, and, and we at the ODI care massively that, that data is kind of really considered in, in that move. And the other thing is that if you look at World Economic Forum reports of the last few years about the future of work, on one hand, some people get worried about the use of increasing machines and, and worry about the future of work, but it's been identified there's going to be 97 million new roles in, in the future, new jobs. What are the sorts of jobs where humans are going to be in the loop that perhaps aren't there now? What sort of data literacy is going to be needed by those types of roles? Alessandra, you're running an established data lab team at the BBC. What sort of new roles have you seen emerging? I'm not sure whether we could talk about new roles, but uh, definitely we could think about how some roles uh, have been changing as a consequence of having to work on these you know, personalized recommendation systems, or I would call them like editorial choices at scale. We, When we worked alongside uh, editorial, on, on the one hand, we had to develop some tools to work together with that. But on the other hand, they had to adapt and look at uh, results of the recommenders thinking about, you know, about kind of the coordinates we were moving in, in the sense of just what data we were using. They had to be more kind of knowledgeable about, you know, what the realm 
of possibilities was. And so I think in on their hand was like you know, concentrating possibly more on the on the broader picture on, on say, okay, this is in general what we want to provide users, understanding maybe just going back also to the principles of, of um, how they work. That's just like, for instance, uh, we had discussions about how recommendations should look like. And uh, I remember editorial mentioning, oh, we are the BBC. So people often just come to us because they want to know what's worth knowing just what are the news that are important to know within a day and so how do we have to think together about how to combine this aspect of the bbc being this authoritative source of information source of news for instance and on the other hand having something that is tailored to the user needs and uh, this i think for me is a shift as compared to the you know, the previous way of working for editorial, which I had, for instance, to pick um, related content for a single piece of content, and it was part of the daily work. You know, th- this thinking at scale is a different perspective. Okay, that's really helpful. I mean, funnily enough, I, I will steal a quote from a, a chief data officer, Volker Buscher at Arup. He talks about thinking creatively at scale with data, which kind of builds on what you just said, Alessandro. In WPP, I mean, are you seeing the kind of emergence of new roles and new capabilities and, and how do and how are you wrestling with kind of making the use of these new tools and, and sort of algorithms and services accessible to, to, to everyone? We're two years into our data ethics and responsible data use work and we've got guidelines and principles that are applicable for every agency and it's obviously humans always in the loop but we do we do talk about transparency, explainability, responsibility, accountability. If you're trying to just push for efficiency, explainability is really hard because you've got to let the machines do their thing. So we recognize there's tension there, but actually explaining that we can't deconstruct the algorithm in some instances may have to be good enough. But we've just written a paper on the future of data. We've called it Thoughtful Data 2032. And we've had a a go at predicting that what the skills would be necessary in the future. And we've said every role is going to be a data role. I mean, to go back to Jen's quote about I don't do data, that's going to be totally unacceptable. It's going to be people's like people now saying I don't use computers. It's going to be completely alien, but the data will be clean. I think it'll be largely synthetic. And I think we will have sorted out the biases and the data leakage problems that we get now that gets into trouble. I think the skills of creatively thinking of how to get value out of the data and optimizing all of that in a safe way. And then my final prediction, I think ethics, corporate social responsibility and ESG goals will be brought into the data world. So actually the KPIs reflect where the business wants to go there. And I'm loving seeing Jen nodding at me there. That's brilliant. That's thanks. Thanks, Di. I'd love to have some predictions as we come to the kind of closing minutes of this podcast. And and Jen, do you want to build on that? I mean, you're obviously kind of working, as we've outlined before, across kind of major client delivery work. I mean, do, are you sort of implementing similar things to Di or how's that taking shape with your client? I just want to echo what, what Di said. I mean, we have already seen the um, the trend and, and I guess our starting point working with clients is if if you don't know where to start with digital ethics, data ethics, look at your corporate responsibility, sustainability, diversity policies, and figure out where you're misaligning because 
although it might not seem like a huge risk today, it's going to be a huge risk in the future. And we're already starting to see some emerging benchmarks and investment funds looking at alignment between AI use and corporate social responsibility and sustainability. So I totally agree, Di. Skills of the future, again, totally agree that all roles will be data roles and and probably they should be now so it, it, there's a race to catch up the implications for that though are are pretty massive but we sh- I don't think we should be frightened by the size of the challenge because we've been here before and as Di said it's like saying you don't use a computer we're in that space now you know it wasn't that long ago where we had people still using typewriters or using shorthand or something and and not engaging with the technology that was rapidly advancing in organizations and I think we're at the same point now and I just want to throw in maybe something slightly different in the conversation about explainability what we don't see a lot of yet and that we're working with our clients on is to bring in end users' views, expectations, beliefs, and values around data use so that you can actually design strategies for transparency and explainability into your kind of products and services, your algorithms and your technology. If you don't understand what your people understand, then you can't design for that. Can you give us an example of that, Jen? That's interesting. Could you expand on that? Sure. So we have a trust and transparency process that we do with end users to understand what exactly they think is happening when their data is being used by a certain organization in a certain context or what the technology is doing. And that just is a really interesting way to start shedding light on both users' fears, which are often exacerbated and worst case, as well as their hopes for things like privacy and how they would like to be communicated with about how their data is being used used and how decisions are being made in in the provision of services. And once we have that baseline, we we can understand what kind of levers we can pull within a data ethics strategy to make sure that we are actually building trust. And we can test that over time by going back and measuring again once we implement certain mechanisms like different privacy policies, privacy enhancing technologies, messages to users, things like that. That's really helpful. And we've got some some different perspectives there from organizations operating in different parts of the economy. And and I, I think I'd really like to thank Jen, uh, Di and Alessandro for their contributions and make a few observations about some of the input we've had today. I think that certainly whilst we at the ODI are trying to get alignment from everyone that data literacy is about working and thinking critically with data. I particularly like some of the closing comments and and recognition from the attendees today that this is a bit like the early days of the typewriter. We do have to shift people's thinking to have some level of data literacy. That does not mean for a moment that we are expecting everyone to be signing up to work in Alessandro's data lab because they are a highly specialist, very skilled bunch of people. And I'm guessing you've got quite a few PhDs in the team, Alessandro, and and lots of um, quite technical people. But there are an increasing number of opportunities and roles for people to traverse those types of teams and the business front lines. And I think, you know, we at the ODR are excited about those opportunities. uh, And we're excited at the thought that data literacy, working um, to build more transparency and trust in the use of data can help to accelerate that journey uh, and at the same time bring about a better future for everyone um, in which brands and the role between the brokerage between machines and humans is one where we all have a bit more trust and I think it would be fair to say that 
in the 10th year of the ODI, we're probably off the back of a decade of, of a lot of issues where mistrust has developed in the use of data. So if anything, our opportunity is ahead of us uh, and we're in the, kind of in the early stages of this journey. So I, I'd really like to thank Jen. I'd like to thank Di. I'd like to thank Alessandro. And I'd like to thank Kristin and the team for bringing this together. Before we say goodbye, a reminder that if you'd like more information on the topics we've addressed today, or you need some guidance about how to address data literacy in your organization, check out the ODI's blog and our resources and some of our training courses. We've included links in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on the podcast webpage. Do follow us on social media at ODIHQ. Do feel free to connect with me uh, on LinkedIn or Twitter uh, and visit our website at theodi.org. Thank you everyone for listening and look forward to seeing you next time.